Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The couple in Cold Springs, Indiana, didn't exactly appear normal, but they also didn't seem downright sinister to people who saw them. That was partly because no one got very close at first. The pair looked peaceful, situated on a sandbar beneath a willow tree along central Indiana's White River. A couple of siblings swimming in the river saw the duo reclining with wisps of smoke over their heads and assumed they were lovers wrapping up a tryst. The children knew to avert their eyes from such scandalous activities, so they pointed out the lovebirds, or maybe business associates, depending on the relationship, to their father, and then they moved along. About the same time, Robert Bowman, the son of a farmer who had been gathering cows on the other side of the river, saw the couple and assumed they were napping. He also noticed wisps of smoke and figured they'd made a small fire, which seemed overkill because of this September day's unusually warm temperatures, but to each his own. Maybe they were cooking up some fish they'd caught. Trouble was, the next morning, Robert spied the couple in the same positions. The smoke was still wisping, and neither the man nor the woman he'd assumed had been napping fireside had moved an inch. Robert realized deeper investigation was warranted, so he crossed the river and, on September 13th, 1868, found a grisly scene with two dead bodies. The man's face had been blown away, apparently by a shotgun Robert saw lying nearby. The source of the fire had been the woman's torso. From the chest down, she'd been so badly burned that her intestines were exposed and the bones inside her turned to dust. When the couple was identified as a respectable, business-minded Indianapolis pair named Jacob and Nancy Jane Young, the story exploded, leading not just to seemingly never-ending headlines about the case, but also to five separate trials of the century. Investigators arriving at the Riverside scene of Jacob and Nancy Young's deaths quickly came up with a theory. The assumption that everyone made was that Jacob Young had killed his wife and then killed himself. This is author Wendy Gamber, who wrote a book about the case in an interview with Talking Hoosier History. But the authorities had the presence of mind to conduct an autopsy, during which they discovered that his wife, Nancy Jane, had been shot with a different weapon, a pistol, which suggested uh, that they had been (laughs) murdered by two different people. That second weapon, the pistol, wasn't at the crime scene. Investigators searched up and down the river in case Jacob Young had maybe tossed or dropped it into the water, but to no avail. They went about gathering clues, pretty thoroughly, too, considering what crime scene preservation practices usually were in the late 19th century. In this case, for example, 
The scene wasn't secured, meaning that over 100 people had gathered at the site, and yet investigators managed to preserve a couple of footprints. One of those was the footprint of a woman whose shoe did not match that of the female victim, and the footprint of a horse who wore a particular kind of shoe. The shoes were designed to avoid a common problem called interference, which is when a horse's foot has a tendency to strike the opposite leg while it trots or gallops. For any equestrians in the audience, this lateral gait abnormality is sometimes called brushing. Now, I'm not an equestrian, but one of my sisters is. Sarah Mills runs a riding program out of Havana, Florida called Iron Star Equestrian, and she explained to me that horses can have what's called conformational defects, causing their legs to either swing inward or outward while running. When it swings to the inside, it can cause damage to the other leg. So the hoof capsule and or the shoe can then slam into the fetlock or the pastern, some of the lower structures of the leg. It doesn't typically affect the knee at all on the opposite leg, but it can cause damage to the fetlock or the pastern or even the other hoof if it's a low enough swing. There are exercises and stuff you can do with a horse to help, but the farrier, or basically the horse shoer, can come up with some solutions too by designing special shoes. And so with shoeing, they would use what's called a half round, which is where they grind off the outer portion of the shoe itself on the inside or medial side of the shoe, which is the side that would end up striking the opposite leg. So they would grind that down and run it under a little bit so that the shoe is slightly misshapen. There's a portion missing essentially from your classic half circle or horseshoe shape. That would then prevent the actual metal shoe itself from colliding with the joint or the fetlock. And then that would reduce some of the risk of damage so you wouldn't have metal striking bone, essentially. So investigators could tell from the shoe prints that whatever horse had been wearing these shoes had this interference problem. And wouldn't you know it, there was a horse nearby who wore such a shoe. This was a bobtail sorrel mare owned by Sullivan and Drew's livery stable. The horse, named Pet, was a rental, as in you could pay to borrow the horse in a buggy for a day from its owner, John Drew. Pet had some unique characteristics. She had a blazed face, meaning a stripe of white ran down the middle of her from her forehead to her nose. She also had hind legs that were white to her knees, plus white spots all over her body. Now, these preventative shoes weren't uncommon in general. Plenty of horses throughout Indianapolis wore the shoe type. But Pet's coloring also matched the description of a horse several witnesses said they saw following Jacob and Nancy Young on Saturday, the day before their bodies were discovered. Not only that, but John Drew had taken special note of the shape Pet had been returned in that Saturday night. He said in later trial testimony that she had been driven hard. In fact, she was so exhausted that Drew worried she was sick, so he tied her outside to cool down rather than putting her back in the stuffy stall, and then he watched over her to make sure she recovered. It was part out of concern for his livelihood, no doubt. Pet was said to be a powerful four-minute nag, which made her a popular rental for people needing to borrow a horse. But Drew also seemed huffed that someone would return the horse in such shoddy condition. He remembered exactly who had rented her. 
a man named Silas Hartman. The foreman of the coroner's jury, which had been impaneled to determine the cause of the Young's death, put out a notice in the newspapers, anyone who encountered Jacob Young and his wife on the day of their murder, please come forward. So various people came forward and they had seen Nancy Clem's brother, younger brother, Silas Hartman, in a buggy following the Young's carriage quite closely. So that implicated him. Police found other clues, too, a big one being the shotgun found close to Jacob Young's body. Gamber again. The second voice you hear is her interviewer, Indiana historian Lindsay Beckley. It turned out that the chief of police recognized the shotgun immediately because he had been in a pawn shop just a few days before contemplating purchasing that very gun for his son. I know, but decided it was too heavy for his 13-year-old son. So the police question the pawn shop owners who were able to identify the man who bought the gun, named William J. Abrams, who had been in business with both Nancy Clem Mm -hmm. and Jacob Young. Jacob Young obviously was one of the two murder victims. Nancy Clem was a respected businesswoman in town who also happened to be the sister of Silas Hartman the guy who had rented Pet the Horse and who witnesses said was trailing the Youngs' horse carriage the day they ultimately died. The pieces were starting to fit together. It was clear to authorities that Nancy Clem, William J. Abrams, the guy who purportedly bought the gun, and Jacob Young had been in business together, cast suspicion on her. And she gave varying and conflicting alibis, both to the coroner's jury and to the grand jury. And the footprint of the shoe happened to be the size uh, she wore. It would take some solid sleuthing, but within a few weeks of the young murders, police would arrest and charge three well-liked members of the Indianapolis community with one of the most horrific and sensational crimes in the region's history. Investigators were sure they had quickly pieced together the story of what had happened to the Youngs, but now they were left to uncover the why. Of the three suspects in the murders of Jacob and Nancy Young, the woman was the biggest shock to the community. That was in part simply because of her gender, but it was more than that. Nancy Clem was considered a lady with nothing in her past to suggest that she might one day be accused of killing someone. She had been born around 1830 in North Carolina as Nancy Hartman, the daughter of a farmer named John who had moved his family to Indiana when Nancy was very small. The Hartmans were a large brood. Nancy was one of four daughters and four sons and among the earliest white settlers of Pike Township. John Hartman was described as one of the most highly respected of central Indiana's pioneers. He wasn't particularly well-educated, though, which we know because he signed his will with his mark a symbol of his illiteracy. His children weren't big on book learning either, but they really didn't need to be. All of the children, girls included, did manual labor on the Hartman's farm. This paid off for each of Nancy's three older sisters, who married prosperous farmers and continued working alongside them. Nancy didn't follow suit. 
1849, she married a plasterer and part-time school teacher named William Patton. Nancy would have been 19 to Patton's 24. Soon after the marriage, Nancy moved with her new husband to Indianapolis, where William and one of Nancy's brothers, this one a fellow plasterer named Matthew, had bought some land. The city was growing fast, after all, and men with their types of skills were needed to help build the countless houses and shops that seemed to be popping up everywhere. Matthew and William each built a house on their shared property on North Alabama Street. William and Nancy settled into one house, while Matthew and his wife Rebecca moved into the other. Both couples had one child apiece. Nancy and William had a son named Albert Patton, who would grow up to become a journalist, while Rebecca and Matthew had a daughter called Mary, but who was nicknamed Pet. Yes, like the horse, so there are two characters named Pet in this story. Gotta love those confusing quinky dinks. Anyway, the area that grew up around the two family homes was considered respectable. Near the Pattons and Hartman's homes lived a carpenter, a teacher, a minister, and a cooper, or someone who makes casks and barrels, according to Wendy Gamber's book, The Notorious Mrs. Clem. The highest-profile neighbor in the hood would end up being a fellow named Benjamin Harrison, who not only would later become a U.S. president, but who in the 1860s was a lawyer who'd ultimately play a huge role in the case we're discussing. When people ask me, like, who cares about this woman? Why does it matter? I always say, what has presidential implications? Because prosecuting Nancy Clem helped Benjamin Harrison make his name and pave the way for his eventual candidacy. Nancy's first husband, William Patton, died some eight years into the couple's marriage in September of 1857. He was only 36. While we don't know his cause of death, it was pretty common for men to die of all sorts of things, including malaria, at such an early age. There were never suspicions raised publicly that we can find. William left behind his wife and six-year-old son Albert in fairly decent shape in that they owned their own home and also had a rental property that earned a couple of hundred dollars a year. And that helped, of course, but it wasn't a ton. So Nancy brought boarders to live with her and Albert. According to her brother Matthew, she would have as many as four at a time. But to be clear, hers was a respectable place, which I have to spell out because not all boarding houses were considered such at the time. Like, running a boarding house could be seen occupationally in similar light to sex work, and as this story develops, you'll understand why that would have been utterly unacceptable to Nancy. Besides, it seems Nancy had figured out another way to earn extra money. She would loan out money at high rates of interest, so if someone needed fast cash, they could come to Nancy and say, hey, I need $50. She'd loan them the $50 and get that, plus whatever interest she'd charge to boot. In 1859, so this is two years after her first husband died, Nancy married a man named William Franklin Clem, known as Frank. He ran a place called Clem and Brothers Grocery, which was a short walk from Nancy's home on Alabama Street. He had a good reputation as an honest businessman, and by today's standards was pretty progressive in how he approached marriage. Now, at the time in Indiana, state law gave her control of any property she had possessed before her marriage. But property bought and money earned during her marriage would have, by default, belonged to Frank. 
Yet Frank entered into a prenuptial contract that gave her control of her own business affairs, so she was, financially speaking, independent of her husband, which, again, was not common at the time. This independence is why Frank didn't know about any of the business dealings that would ultimately land his wife in the crosshairs of a murder investigation. She and Jacob Young had engaged in a series of mysterious and fraudulent business transactions, probably amounting to what we would today call a Ponzi scheme. If you don't know, the term Ponzi scheme comes from a guy named Charles Ponzi who wouldn't be born until 1882. But what he made infamous was awfully similar to what Nancy Clem was doing 20 years before his birth. To understand how this works, first you need to understand a simpler scheme called a pyramid scheme from One Minute Economics. As the name suggests, a pyramid scheme is an investment scam which revolves around current investors receiving money by recruiting new members. The new members will receive money by recruiting other people and so on. In short, one guy's like, hey, let's start a group, and to belong to this group, you pay me $100, and if you recruit people to also join, I'll give you $90 of their $100 fee, so I make 10 extra bucks just by you recruiting people. The shtick might work for a while, but eventually you're going to have a bottom tier of people who can't recruit others, and that bottom tier is pissed they're paying $100 to belong to this group for no benefit, and so they quit. Then the previous penultimate tier is left paying $100 to belong to a group for no benefit, and so they quit too. Eventually, all pyramid schemes collapse. A Ponzi scheme, on the other hand, also relies on new money coming in to pay existing investors, but with one exception. The investors don't know this. They're being lied to and think it's a legitimate investment. This is what Bernie Madoff got away with for decades. He convinced people he generated returns by trading, when in fact, he was simply using money from new members to pay existing ones. This is the business in which Nancy Clem was engaged. She routinely would have private, not secret, not sexual, but private, meetings with Jacob Young at his house because he was one of her investors. She apparently owed him a lot of money, but had kept him at bay for a long time by figuring out how to pay him, say, supposed interest on loaned money, which thwarted his suspicions for a while. By the fall of 1868, things between them were getting tense. Jacob had started demanding his money back. Nancy and Jacob weren't the only ones involved in this beta Ponzi scheme. So were William Abrams and Nancy's youngest sibling, Silas Hartman, who was nicknamed Syke. The men's roles were kept on the down low, which made sense because this was supposed to be an above-board business arrangement, Yet Bill Abrams was married to a girl who'd been raised by one of Nancy's sisters, and Psych Hartman was Nancy's literal brother. It would not have pleased investors to know that there was this nepotistic trio handling a bunch of people's money. After gathering all the physical clues at the scene of the young murders, the shoe prints, the shotgun, etc., plus talking to all the witnesses who stepped forward, prosecutors had a theory— They believed that Jacob Young picked up Nancy Clem in a buggy and the two were supposed to talk business. It doesn't seem likely that Nancy had expected Jacob to bring along his wife, which is based on the fact that a servant in the Young's house said Mrs. Young asked to join her husband on his outing at the last minute. But regardless, witnesses later said they saw a buggy on Saturday carrying the Youngs and a woman who appeared to be Nancy Clem 
headed toward the White River area where the Youngs' bodies would be found Sunday morning. Behind the Youngs was, according to several witnesses, Syke Hartman in a buggy drawn by the blazed-faced horse named Pet, the one wearing special shoes. Prosecutors figured that William Abrams had to have been at the murder site as well. Maybe he'd been there a while, waiting there. Because, after all, they had found the gun Abrams had bought just feet from Jacob Young's body. And to many, this seemed like an open and shut case. Nancy had led Jacob and his wife into a trap, with Silas following them, and William laying in wait. That theory led to the arrests of all three, Nancy, Silas, and William, and trials for each were expected to quickly get underway. But Nancy's status as a respectable woman did make some people uncomfortable. Author Wendy Gamber again. People were quite outraged that a woman had supposedly committed this crime. Uh, The Louisville Courier-Journal, for example, um, described Clem as, quote, the wickedest and most irresponsible woman in the world. The reputation was bolstered by how awful the murders were. Both Mr. and Mrs. Young had been shot in the head. Post-mortem examination of Mrs. Young suggested she had fought back at first and was batting the head with a pistol butt, too. Also, her body was either set on fire on purpose or it was accidentally ignited by a gunshot spark hitting the notoriously flammable crinoline of Mrs. Young's dress. Either way, the end result was horrifying, with a slow burning fire having hollowed out her torso. Barely two months after the murders in early December 1868, the first of what would ultimately prove to be five trials related to the Young's killings was set to begin. The Evansville Daily Journal put things pretty simply on December 3rd, 1868. Quote, The trial of Mrs. Clem for the murder of Jacob Young and his wife is creating great excitement at Indianapolis. End quote. And that was the first line of the news brief. The second line is kind of shocking to me as a journalist. It goes, quote, The court prohibited publication of the testimony, but the evening papers publish it deeming the order arbitrary and not warranted by law. End quote. And the shocking part, to be clear, is that the judge in the trial against Nancy Clem somehow thought it would go over well to forbid journalists from printing anything about the trial. The judge's thinking was that a lot of the evidence presented against Nancy would in subsequent trials be presented against William Abrams and Syke Hartman, which does make it tough if you're hoping to find untainted jurors. The worry was that the jury pool for the subsequent trials would likely have already read a bunch of the evidence in the case thanks to what was printed about the first trial. But there's this whole freedom of the press thing for a reason. The major local newspapers, the Journal and the Sentinel, rebelled against the preemptive gag order, printing testimony from the case anyway. So Judge George H. Chapman fined reporters $25 apiece and had the managing editors of the two papers arrested. Soon, though, the judge backed down and allowed the newspapers to print witness testimony after all. And there was a lot of testimony. Both sides called dozens of witnesses apiece for every witness who said they were sure they saw Nancy Clem in the Young's wagon that fateful day. Someone else stepped forward to say it might have been someone else. Specifically, a sex worker who bore a vague resemblance to Clem, whose name was Cal Prather. 
Prather had been found during what the author Gamber described as a, quote, Cinderella search for a disreputable villainess whose shoe size matched the incriminating footprint at Cold Springs, end quote. If you don't remember, there were horseshoe prints and also the print of a lady's gaiter that appeared new and was a size three. Two allies of Clem's, a former deputy sheriff and the current deputy city marshal, actually interfered with witnesses by driving Prather to their homes and saying, Hey, this is who you saw that day in the Young's buggy, not Mrs. Clem. The public was outraged by the apparent witness tampering. Speaking during Clem's trial in December 1868, prosecuting attorney John T. Dye said, For the honor of the sex, for the credit of our city and of humanity, God forbid that there should be one other such woman on the continent. The trial was chaotic. And throughout Clem's three-week trial, the courthouse was jam-packed with spectators. And in fact, some people actually feared that the courthouse might collapse under their weight because the criminal court was on um, the second floor. Wannabe spectators climbed in through windows just to quickly be kicked out. Some complained about Nancy Clem's appearance when they saw her because, gosh darn it, she just didn't look like a murderess to them. She looked calm and collected. She wore tasteful clothes befitting an upper-class lady. Prosecutors had to somehow convince the all-male jury that this woman was not only the mastermind of a murder conspiracy, but, according to their theory, she was actually the one who shot and killed Mrs. Young. Now, Nancy didn't do much to help her own defense. For starters, she lied to police about where she had been the afternoon of the murder. Then she lied to a grand jury as well. Clem had told the grand jury that she had been home the afternoon of the murders, a statement that was patently false. And true, she had instructed her sister-in-law and niece to swear the same. Uh, She had even threatened her sister-in-law with bodily harm um, if she did not do so. Still, that didn't prove she had been at Cold Spring. In fact, some witnesses stepped forward offering Clem an entirely different alibi altogether. Witnesses testified to seeing her in downtown Indianapolis, at the post office, and in the hosiery section of the New York store, about the time the killings took place. Indeed, the evidence furnished by the 101 witnesses called by the state and the 54 by the defense was contradictory and confusing. Nancy Clem's first trial ended with a hung jury. 11 out of the 12 jurors favored acquittal, but there was one holdout who would not budge in his belief she was guilty. The state moved quickly to try her again. The second trial, which started about six weeks after the first one ended, presented much of the same evidence, though this time around, future President Benjamin Harrison played a much bigger role. So too did Nancy's husband. Frank Clem had stood by his wife in the first trial, but his support seemed to intensify as time wore on. Some of the witnesses who had testified in the first trial sounded more sure of themselves the second time around. For example, one witness who had said the second woman in the Young's buggy looked similar to Clem said in the second trial that he thought it was Mrs. Clem, a subtle but important tweak in his testimony. And stuff like that worked. The second jury convicted Nancy Clem of killing Mrs. Young. The cases were set to be handled one at a time. 
Though jurors had been torn between first-degree murder and manslaughter, and so they split the difference and went with second-degree murder. But the story's not over. While Nancy's lawyers readied to appeal her conviction, her brother, Syke, released a statement to media saying that he and Abrams had committed the murders alone. The night after Abrams read this in the newspaper, Syke's throat was slit in the cell he shared with Abrams. It was ruled a suicide because Syke had been depressed since his sister's conviction, but the description of the death was so gruesome that some naturally suspected Abrams must have killed him for turning on him. If Syke had killed himself, he did so by using an old broken razor that all the male inmates used to shave and slashed himself several times in the throat. Not long after that, Nancy Clem was sentenced to life in prison, and William Abrams, the only one left of her alleged accomplices, was found guilty in his own trial. Abrams had fought for the Union during the Civil War and had several soldiers testify about what an exemplary military man he'd once been. The jury could have recommended the death sentence for him, but they didn't. In fact, they didn't even want him to get life in prison, which was the customary alternative to capital punishment. The jury submitted a signed recommendation to the state governor that stated Abrams' crime was, quote, the result of wicked influences surrounding him and not the result of a bad heart, end quote. As such, they asked that he be sentenced to just 10 years in prison. Gamber wrote in her book, quote, it was a curious piece of jurisprudence, one that would lend weight to calls for overhauling a judicial system that gave juries the duty of pronouncing sentences as well as verdicts, end quote. In the meantime, Nancy Clem's conviction was overturned by the state Supreme Court because of one of the instructions the judge had given the jury. It's a little convoluted, but basically, the judge was determined to have not adequately explained the meaning of the word consent when he told jurors that, quote, if the murder was perpetrated with her knowledge and consent or connivance, she is a principal, end quote. And what it meant, in short, was that Nancy Clem was unconvicted and granted a third trial that began in July of 1871. That one was moved to a neighboring county because the judge agreed that it would probably be hard to find yet another impartial jury in Clem's home county. In this third trial, William Abrams testified, which drew big crowds, but not a ton of new info. He denied buying the shotgun found at the scene of the crime and spent a lot of time explaining his business dealings with Nancy. He had lent her a lot of money, apparently, and while she sometimes repaid him quote-unquote profits on his investments, she rarely ever paid back any principal. The third trial ended in a second hung jury, this time evenly split six to six between those believing her guilty versus innocent. Prosecutors wasted no time in declaring there would be a fourth trial. Now, these were big trials, but they were also becoming so routine that one newspaper joked about them being an annual affair. As in, hey, look, another trial against Mrs. Clem is about to start. I guess that means it's spring. Author Gamber talking to Lindsay Beckley again. Her third and fourth trials were moved to Boone County, so the Lebanon newspapers published some, uh, but not all, of the testimony because they were weekly newspapers. And one of the Lebanon newspapers said, you know, we can't publish everything, all, all the testimony concerning this case. 
uh, otherwise we couldn't publish any other news. Mm -hmm. So there were those frustrations. Take four on Nancy Clem's murder trial played out a lot like one through three, but this time ended with a first-degree murder conviction for Mr. Young. For the second time, a jury pronounced her guilty of murder, and she again was sentenced to life in prison. She was routinely referred to as the Indiana murderess in newspaper accounts, some of which praised the overall process as, quote, an illustration of the occasional sureness of slow justice, end quote. And again, the state Supreme Court set aside the verdict. That ruling came in June of 1873. The court cited two reasons. First, that the judge in the fourth trial had issued bad instructions to jurors again. The second reason was complicated and stemmed from the fact that in trial number two, Nancy had been convicted of second-degree murder in Mrs. Young's death, yet in trial number four, she was convicted of first-degree murder for Mr. Young's death. The high court decided that wasn't right, that because she had once been convicted of the lesser second-degree murder charge, she was ineligible to be considered guilty of first-degree murder the fourth time around. Now, if you're like, hey, wait a minute, but the second-degree murder was for the woman victim and the first-degree conviction was for the man, so how does that even make any sense? Well, the court decided that the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Young constituted one singular crime and, as such, the jury in trial number four should not have been given the option of considering a first-degree conviction, so Nancy was released from prison, once again, an unconvicted woman. If you're curious, yes, my brain is about to fall out of my ear hole. The gears began to turn for yet another retrial, but it never happened. Prosecutors started the process, but stopped it before jury selection. Nancy Clem was no longer charged with murder, though lots of people believe she was guilty as hell and just got off on weird-ass technicalities. It's a unique enough case that there are still reenactments of the trials on occasion. This is an interview with some players and one such reenactment being interviewed by a reporter from Fox 59 TV. It's such a um, fascinating case. Uh, there's so much, um, really, there's a lot of tawdry detail to it. Um, Right, and so the the audience gets to actually in, be involved in a, a, a sort of a, a talk back at the end, hmm. where they can actually sort of help us explore some more of the case. It's interesting, you know, the four trials had lots of peculiarities to them that, you know, if, if tried nowadays, probably would have led to a lot of mistrials and a lot of other people being um, charged with perjury, uh, witness tampering, and a whole bunch of other things. That didn't happen in the wake of Nancy Clem's trials, however. No further charges were filed in relation to the case, though William Abrams was pardoned in 1878 on the grounds he'd been so well-behaved in prison. Nancy was perhaps less well-behaved. She gets out of prison and she gets back into the same kind of wheeling and dealing, and she's um, convicted of perjury. This is in 1880. After that, she was convicted of larceny, for which she served three years in prison. Then she gained notoriety when she uh, subsequently became a peddler of patent medicines who portrayed herself uh, not entirely truthfully as a female physician. She sold a product called Slavin's Infallible Female Tonic, which was advertised in newspapers catering to poor people as a remedy for, quote, all female complaints. End quote. 
Reading between the lines, it appears it was an abortion medicine, which makes what happened in December 1892 all the more confusing. That was when a 58-year-old Black Civil War veteran was prescribed the tonic for his ailing health. He took three bottles of the stuff and died. His death certificate was signed by a Mrs. Dr. Patterson, who turned out to really be Nancy Clem. Once officials tracked her down, she explained that she prescribed the man a female tonic because Slavin's infallible was used by families promiscuously without regard to sex, age, or character of illness. She added that it couldn't have been the cause of his death. Quote, if he had taken any of that, it would have injured him no worse than water, end quote. An autopsy showed that the Civil War vet, a man named John Martin, had been suffering from a lot of problems, so Clem was never charged in his death, but a cloud hung over her nonetheless. She continued to sell Slavin's tonic until she fell ill in early 1897 of a kidney infection that killed her on June 8th of that year. As her health deteriorated over those months, she continued to deny any involvement in the young murders, saying that, quote, all these years I have borne the blame for what another did, end quote. Her son, Albert Patton, worried that after he buried his mother, her notoriety would put her grave at risk. As such, he initially had buried her in an unmarked location, and then a few months later moved her to his wife's family plot. Still wanting to thwart grave robbers or desecrators, Albert commissioned a tombstone that reads simply, Mother. To research the story, I read contemporary news coverage, but I'm most indebted to Wendy Gamber's The Notorious Mrs. Clem, Murder and Money in the Gilded Age. Gamber gave a couple of author talks that were helpful too, the one with Talking Hoosier History and another with the Indianapolis Propylium. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.